Brought to you from sunny Soho, it's the Campaign Podcast. Yes, we are back. I'm your host today, Omar Oaks, Campaign's Global Tech Editor. Today, diversity isn't a problem to fix, it's the solution. Those are the words splashed across the front cover of Campaign Magazine this month as we publish our special BAME issue, where we celebrate the best of the industry's black and ethnic minority talent. But why is there such a gap in BAME people being represented at the very top of advertising and media agencies? Plus, how about some more age diversity in Adland? Three agency veterans have launched a new startup. Is this a sign of things to come? We're also looking at a watershed moment for social media before getting all lovey-dovey as we look ahead to Valentine's Day. All this and more in the world of advertising, media marketing in this week's campaign podcast. And what a podcast we have, an illustrious panel we have in sunny Soho. To my right, we have Larissa Vince, Chief Executive Now. Hello. Hey, Omar, how are you? Very well. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. What have you been working on this week, Larissa? Um, well, the usual, really, isn't it? Clients, uh, creative work, new business, but um, we're looking for a new office as well, which is something a bit different, particularly for me. Exciting, breaking news. So you're in Burner Street, we're in Burner Street. Street in London, yeah. Central London. Where are you looking to go? Well, obviously, I want to move to Waterloo, but there don't seem to be any um, any uh, appropriate properties there. So yeah, um, Exmouth Market, Farringdon, those kinds of places that near where you are have I made that up? Uh, we're in Bermondsey oh, on yeah. a bridge area okay. yeah so we're not really, we're not really. <laughs> <laughs> that voice you can hear is Zaid Alzadi Chief Executive of the Beyond Collective hello hi how are you doing very well thank you what is the Beyond Collective for people who don't know uh, we're a micro network of specialist companies that work under one roof. So clients can access us a specialist agency, media, strategy, advertising, production, or form a combined team to answer their integrated briefs. So we're a, a mini group. What WPP tries to do, but on a smaller, better uh, scale. He's done that before. Yeah, I was just going to ask how many times have <laughs> you said that before? A few. It's a good note. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, anything surprised you in the world of advertising and media marketing? I've just run through the topics that we're going to talk about, but anything caught your eye, guys, Larissa? Well, I mean, it's sort of on topic, but the, I mean, nothing much surprises me anymore, I have to say. But um, one thing, I think it was last week, I was pretty surprised when I went to the A-list party that it did seem to be full of white middle-class men. This is um, Campaign's A-list party that we hold every year to celebrate the great and the good of the advertising industry. And it's not that's not a campaign thing. I mean, look, you're sort of slightly at the mercy of who is at the top of the industry and also who says yes to your party invite. But I was a bit, I was a bit surprised, actually. I was more surprised than I thought I'd be. Do you think white men are more inclined to turn up to parties? <laughs> yeah, they're more interested in the free booze. <laughs> Maybe it's that. It's got nothing to do with the representation. It's yeah, purely the, yeah, exactly. I did wonder if it was just because it was super crowded and then the only people you could see at all. So they're guys. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, honestly, it did strike me. And I wasn't the only one who said it, actually, on the night. Hmm. It, it was super crowded, and as someone who is not super tall myself, I can attest that you don't see as many people as you'd like to. Um, but enough about that. Um, so let's get into diversity. Um, I was personally very proud that Campaign launched our BAME special issue this month. Um, big shout out to Gemma Charles, who oversaw the production of that um, wonderful job, and really proud to be a part of that. Um, it looked real... beautiful, didn't it? Oh, thank you. I thought like, so. as in, yeah. and, and also just seeing so many beautiful people. um, the photography I thought was great honestly I just thought the whole thing looked fabulous thank you very much we tried very hard indeed on that and um, yeah the visual element of it is really striking 
Um, there was a rather shocking um, story in the news section. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, basically, it said that Adland is moving too slowly in terms of BAME senior, senior leadership. Um, this story says that just 12% of women in colour working in Adland are in senior roles, and that means head of department or creative director upwards. And that figure drops to 6% when it comes to black women. And I've been at campaign for nearly five years now, and I feel like we're talking about diversity every year. Everyone knows it's a problem. Everyone says the right things about wanting to do something, but yet we seem to be hitting a brick wall. Why is progress still so slow? What are the main problems, do you think? You see, I've been in the industry for over 20 years, so I actually um, feel like it's been it's been quite a recent conversation, actually. So, yeah, I totally you know, agree. I, I, I agree it's been a big theme for the last few years, but actually... Given I've been working over 20 years, it's only arisen as an issue in the last um, few. I mean, I I don't envy any CEO of any ad agency. Um, they've either come in um, because the last guy's been fired and they're trying to rewire the business, um, win new business, transform themselves to the digital age and think about the diversity agenda. So I kind of think that... Um, it's an impossible task in its own right, let alone tackling something that is incredibly sensitive and woven into the fabric of our society and, and the history of our country. So five years, probably not enough time. 20, probably. It's a long journey. Yeah, I, t- I c- couldn't agree more with that. And I think, you know, it's, it's not a... Diversity is such a broad issue. So, yes, it's about people of ethnic minority, it's about gender, it's about sexuality, but it's about difference more broadly. I mean, I've always had a big thing about behaviour, so diversity of behaviour or acceptance that, you know, the extrovert ideal, which is pretty prevalent in advertising, isn't necessarily the only way. So it's it's really, really broad. So having to think, you know, you're totally right, having to think about how do we get better at all that stuff, at the same time as, you know, yeah. dealing with the day-to-day. Yeah. But, but you know, you have to. Because all the stuff you read, you, you know, I'm sure you would agree, We none of us can disagree with the truth that in order to accurately communicate with Britain, the people in our agencies have to accurately reflect that society. And it's a slow game. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, think it, I think there has been change in the last sort of five years i mean i know it's not quick enough but i think there has been change now larissa um for listeners that don't know you have an interesting career background <laughs> you used to work at campaign yourself didn't you uh, the golden days um <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to get your perspective um, i think we've both held the same role as news editor at mm-hmm. one time or not a campaign i'm interested to know if you were in the campaign news editor chair now what you would be thinking what questions you would be asking of people as yourself who is now running a ceo position at a London ad firm? Um, I'll tell you what I would do. And, you know, this may be unpopular at Campaign Towers. Um, I think there are a lot of people in the industry who's, um, who play lip service to these issues. And I also think that um, there's enough, there's never enough, um, I think Campaign should take a stance on the people that it allows to have a voice in the product, so whether that's online or in the magazine. And I think the brand has a real role to play in creating and promoting change. Now, I find it quite annoying when I look in the issue 
And I see people being quoted as um, people to look up to. But I happen to know from 20 years in and around the industry that um, there may be practices or um, things that have happened at those people's agencies, which I don't think the brand would say it believes in. So, So I think, you know, you can ask tougher questions, I suppose, or have high standards of people. Don't just accept what people say because everyone will say the same thing. You know, ask, like, what are you actually doing? Do you have KPIs in place um, in order to to improve your diversity, um, the profile of the people that work in the agency? What behaviours are you encouraging within the business or enforcing within the business to ensure that you are providing an inclusive environment? That's what okay. I do. So let me... <laughs> let me conven- you can ask me those questions. Well, then. I was just going to conveniently <laughs> throw it back to you. So um, um, you've worked um, at Saatchi and Saatchi for a number of years in senior roles. And now, is it four years, four months, sorry, that you've yeah, been at now? Yeah, I think it's about four or five months, yeah. That you've been at now running the agency. Um, what we can talk about, we can, I can ask you, secondly, what are you trying to do to improve diversity in your own agency? But first, what are the problems? What's holding you back? They're different depending on the size of agency, I guess. I mean, at a smaller agency, you don't have as much opportunity to create change in the sense that you can't necessarily, you don't have as many open vacancies, for example, because there's fewer people leaving and therefore there's fewer people coming in. Um, I always think culture, I don't know what you think about this. So in order to attract people and crucially keep them, in an inclusive environment, your agency culture has to be absolutely right. So it has to be an inclusive culture. It has to be a culture which is accepting and understanding of difference in all its forms. And that is what you can do. And everyone can do that. And everyone should be doing that all the time. And you have to be really clear about what those behaviours are. And also you have to make sure that where people aren't behaving in an inclusive way, you're calling it out and stopping it again. Sometimes it's just ignorance sometimes it's kind of fear like we were talking about this earlier because people are worried like they don't actually know often where where what inclusive behavior looks like so you know you have to you have to bring it in and make it happen and Zaid, um in a previous life you ran a very big agency indeed mccann london yeah um same question for you what did you try to do while you were there what stopped you I'm going to speak very honestly. I mean, you know, at the time when I joined McCann London, it wasn't in the greatest shape. And my number one objective was getting it back onto the map from an agency point of view. Um, I was under the watchful eye of New York. And the only metrics that really mattered at the time was the new business league table um, and any other kind of great work we were doing. So the general conversation with the organisation had zero concern to do with any diversity target and perhaps they felt that they'd satisfied that with my appointment Mm -hmm. in the first instance. Also, I think for global organisations it's kind of easier in a way because if you think of them as a global property they're inherently more more diverse and it might not feel as endemic to them when they're handling global briefs with global international teams um so it it really wasn't it wasn't a, a subject there and i think the the narrative i tried to create um was that diversity makes for more interesting interesting work i think historically in the uk diversity has come from different craft skills coming together um so art direction copywriting and more recently code you know that trilogy of kind of creative thinking but now we need people with different um sensibilities when it comes to different communities attitudes to 
things, etc. I love that quote that says that in the UK it's Christmas all year round. So actually Christmas is a big economy um, in December, but actually people are celebrating Diwali, Eid mm. all year round. And I think that if brands can be more attuned to that, they'll perform better and grow better. So I think there's always been a, a strong business case. And in fact, that's the argument I've always put forward, which is less of the worthy we need to have a representative sample of people and more to create better creativity to create more business growth we need to hire different people and i think actually post brexit if we're going to export our thinking to other markets i mean i worked at mother for years and actually they had a very international team of creators which meant that they could solve international problems in a very easy way so i think a lot for me sadly i mean i have to say this a lot of the diversity conundrum is more of a source of paralysis than it is inspiration because there's so much language that goes with what's the right way of talking about um you know you know transgender um differences or lgbt there's so much language that goes with this question that i think most people are paralyzed whereas i think actually we should flip it and go there's an opportunity to be an export of brilliant work that can speak to many people by hiring people from different walks of life I don't understand this. What do you mean when you say paralysed? Who's paralysed? In what way? Well, I think I think that it's very hard for people to talk about uh, difference in a way. You know, I mean, for, you know, when I was growing up, you 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 could say um, that someone from a was a, a person of colour, right? No, you couldn't. Sorry. And then <laughs> and then the last couple of years, you can. So there's a whole. It's quite li- hard to keep up with, even as a mixed yeah, race yeah, person myself. A, it's impossible not to get it wrong. And I think for a lot of white young men, I'm I'm very fearful of. I'm very, I'm, you know, I have, it's weird, I have, uh, my wife's from the UK, she's blonde, blue eyes, I've got two boys, one is brown, like me, and the other one is white, and they've both got the same surname, and they're going to have an incredibly different kind of experience. experience. they will, yeah. And, um, and was, was, I'm just with um, two young children, yeah. what do they think when they watch advertising? If indeed they do watch yeah. advertising, do they look at it as diverse or not? They just, they're genuinely colourblind. But and also children don't think about it. My little boy, who's eight, his best friend um, only has one leg, and he so he has a prosthetic leg. But I didn't find out for three years because it had never occurred to Elliot that that was weird at all. Like you know, they, they I don't believe that children think about it. Some of those um, those thoughts come into our heads as we yeah. get older. Yeah. But I really agree with you about people about a para- paralysis. Yeah. Um. I I think three times yesterday somebody like that I worked with uh, said something like oh that's a nice dress and then apologized yeah. oh am I is it all right to say that yeah like, of course it's all right to say that but you know people are really worried now and so and then you lose a bit of natural behavior which is a real shame because yeah. agency environments the brilliant things about agency environments is the sort of camaraderie camaraderie exactly and I think if I think for organizations to change they need to be comfortable with difference and language as a way of um, understanding and relating to difference and if we can't talk fluently and comfortably about difference and feel confident in ourselves how on earth are we going to approach talent or think about our policies etc etc I think this language thing is a real kind of issue there's so much jargon out there it changes all the time it's so easy to get it wrong if you get it wrong you're scared of being labeled as being old-fashioned i think i i actually think that you know human beings are more are find difference uncomfortable 
and we've all got a bias of some sort. We've all got a prejudice at some level. I mean, my parents from the Middle East, they have views on certain nations that I don't yep, sit absolutely. well with me. I mean, it's an it's an international thing, not a UK thing. Human beings feel comfortable with people like themselves. Yeah. Um, and so if we come out and go, we do have prejudices or we can find a common language or it's okay to make mistakes and we're not fearful of people who jump onto their bandwagon and build their career and their profile by their strong you know, diversity point of view, but over something else, I think it'll make it easier. What about this specific point about getting more BAME representation in senior leadership, particularly? I mean, you guys are running agencies, that's wonderful, but there aren't enough people of a BAME description. How how are we specifically going to change that? You know, if if we accept that there aren't enough people at that top level, then in recruiting for top-level roles, you may have to look a level down. I mean, that's the same with all... Um, minority or disadvantaged groups but I also think you probably have to look outside the industry because because I think that you know there's a truth because if we look at it in the long term I've always really been focused on bringing people into the agencies that I've worked in in order to create a pipeline and then creating an environment so they're not spat out again two years later because they're not in an environment in which they feel comfortable well that's much more of a long-term strategy I mean if, if, if it's a priority for you you are going to have to look at different backgrounds you know not necessarily only ever worked at an above the line agency all those sort of normal criteria you will end up with the same types of people if you do it like that we hear we hear a lot of the time where well we don't speak the same accent or maybe they won't get on with a client as somebody who went to that school from that background would is there enough actually getting helping people through that process of going up the career ladder to a senior leadership position I don't think there's any of it and you know once you've trained your own people or groomed your own people you've got to then worry about the client and whether they have the shared view as well because <laughs> ultimately we're in the business of client servicing so you might have the most progressive team but if your client can't see it then you have a choice either not to work with a client or replace them with something someone that they, they find more comfortable I don't think there's any such thing I think it's a real um I think there's a real challenge in our industry generally. I mean, one thing I want to say is that we've switched from retainer-based remuneration, which lends itself more to culture building, uh, career development, investing in, you know, talent, uh, graduate schemes, whatever it is, um, to a more project-based one. So because we're project-based, we never know what the job is, where the talent's going to come from. And when we when we do have a project, we're sourcing talent from an existing pool, and that existing pool is a byproduct of the learning and the people that already exist. So I think it is definitely a long-term thing. I totally agree, Larissa. It is about our pipeline. I think it's going to be harder to build a pipeline because of this retainer versus project-based thing. I also think our industry needs to work out how it's going to be a magnet to attract talent. I think in the future it won't be... I think. I think without being a magnet, you lean on nepotism and who you know. And I think naturally, therefore, it breeds the same type of people. But actually, if the industry became a magnet for talent, I think we would just be attracting a representative sample from London at 40% BAME, for example. Problem is, young talent don't necessarily want to go into advertising anymore. Um, people don't think it's necessarily trusted as an institution. Um, tech companies pay better. A lot of the time when I go into schools... 
kids don't even know it's a career. Yeah. So like, and so you've got to promote it as a career, I think, more at that sort of at yeah. that level. And that's the long-term game. And maybe those are the roles that the IPA, the Ad Association can play because they represent the longevity that doesn't exist in an ad agency mm-hmm. with its revolving door of senior managers or the fact that they're having to contend with massive change in their own industry. So I think actually it needs um, external intervention to a degree uh, to secure that long-term strategy, which I think is the only thing that's going to make a difference. Okay, before we wrap up, last question. Larissa, you began by talking about this issue of accountability and bad behaviours being called out. Um, I don't know if from your own experiences, you know, I mean, you know where lots of bodies are buried, I'm sure. Um, but you can, Far too many. Um, do you, would you say you're more confident in saying that today in the year 2020 that bad behaviours or at least, you know, discrimination in the workplace are being called out more than they used to be? Um, yeah, I think so. I also think what would now be considered quite rightly bad behaviour. It wasn't very long ago that that behaviour was completely normal. Um, we were talking earlier about, I mean, a personal experience I had myself, which was probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago. I was in Cannes, which is a ridiculous way to start a story, but I was in Cannes. Um, and uh, I... For the International Festival of Creativity. Exactly, for those holiday. that don't know, not on holiday. So, yeah, and I happened to be wearing a dress that exposed my shoulders and a guy who I was with who was a senior leader of an agency at a time thought it would be funny to uh, rest his testicles on my shoulder as a joke. Oh, you're a joke. I'm not joking. Um, and probably for about seven or eight years afterwards, every time I saw that guy, um, he would tell the story, kind of like as a badge of honour, and the surrounding people would find it very amusing. And, it, you know, I've obviously found it uncomfortable. I could hold my own in that situation. But, you know, I think it does demonstrate how much things have changed because quite rightly now that sort of behaviour would be considered completely unacceptable. I mean, bear in mind, the guy was like, I don't know, 20 years older than me, probably. Really? I mean, not that it matters and in a really senior position. But so I do think things have changed, thank goodness, because I think that kind of behaviour now would just be met with horror and disbelief. Um, and I know you've had yeah, similar, similar experiences. For my company, Stag Do, uh, I was urged to wear a, a orange boiler suit, a Guantanamo Bay boiler suit, because people knew I was from the, the Middle East. And it was weird because they were actually a bunch of friends and it felt consistent with the... Um, very kind of disruptive creative culture that was there but that it was very uncomfortable and uh, that would never happen now i mean i've spent hours writing our staff handbook it's very clear what you can and cannot do do you have to specifically say don't racially profile people and yeah i mean i mean mean, yeah i mean it calls out every form of prejudice that can exist that is unacceptable i think i think it's now firmly in the vernacular that that's not acceptable behaviour. I mean, yeah. I hope, and I really hope that there's very few places or agencies now where yeah, something it, like that would it just be. Wouldn't even, it's really yeah. shocking. I mean, the same question for both of you. Did you manage to shrug it off at the time and maybe in hindsight you think, oh, that was actually much worse than I thought it was? Or was it more immediate than that that you actually felt, no, that's just not okay? I mean, I've spent my whole life navigating a pretty much white male-dominated world and sometimes, and, and it's often about getting on with people and finding a path for yourself and fitting in and you've got to know when to shrug it off and just feel a bit uncomfortable but move on and when to 
call it out. And, and also, I think it's like it, uh, the it, the reason that you and I have ended up in senior roles is there's many reasons for that, but one of the reasons I imagine is because we are able to stand up for ourselves. I, I, I think the problem comes, you know, that's just a character thing or an experience yeah. thing. There are plenty of people who don't feel able to stand up for themselves. Yeah, and, and or have the confidence exactly. to stand up for themselves. And, and I did. I had a lot of confidence me too. in the strength. And it was... Which was lucky, but there yeah. are plenty of people who would have been yeah. in similar experiences to you and I. I mean, back then I could laugh it off. Now I wouldn't laugh it off. I'd feel outraged. Yeah. I guess that's the difference that's evolved over time. It's a yeah. strategy to laugh it off, just yeah. carry on versus actually call it out. Yeah, exactly. unacceptable. And, and I do actually, I totally agree with you. Cause, and I also think... Um, how you call it out as well has changed like we might have sort of called out in the past but couched in a sort of uh, aha i get that you didn't mean it whereas i think now it would be no that's completely unacceptable yeah and if i called it out in the past i might not have necessarily believed the person i was calling out to would have backed me yeah they would they might have gone you know can't you take a joke can't you take a joke whereas i now know that you know for that person not not to back you they'd be in trouble themselves (laughs) i mean yeah well, on that note, um, the campaign BAME issue, um, there are lots of extraordinary stories from really interesting people. And I have to say, I've been working on the magazine for nearly five years and a lot of these people, I had never met them, didn't know about them. Um, so it's really important that, you know, it's a good point that we need to increase the range of people that we're talking into the industry. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, London's oldest ad agency. Is this going to be a thing? Our next story involves a trio of Adland's most senior figures, one of them in his 70s, who plan to defy their years by launching what they claim will be London's old ad agency. It's going to be called Ancient and Modern, and it's set by such luminaries as Adrian Holmes, 66, he was at Lowe, he's the worldwide chairman, one of the founding partners of this new agency, and he's being joined by John O'Driscoll, 72, Seamus O'Farrell, 55. So this is a good diversity story, is it not? We don't have enough older people, I should say, in the industry. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, clearly an older, an ageing population requires an an age-old ad agency, potentially. Um, And increasingly being able to talk to that audience in a way that isn't patronising or, you know, um, is going to be key. Interestingly, that's not why they set up. Um, They set up to uh, get to solutions faster and cheaper, which I thought was a massive disappointment. But, you know, of course, everyone's saying that, aren't they? Yeah, but I thought they might call out and go, you know what? We need a bit longer. 130 years worth of experience is worth it. Well, I was quite interested in something um, one of them said that craft skills are lacking. And I wondered what your experience was of that. I have anecdotally heard from creatives, that, um, admittedly, at the bigger ad networks where they're maybe hiring um, more talent, less specialist talent. Um, they say that the, the younger creatives, they've got a lot of great ideas, thinking different ways about multi-platform, different channels, but they can't actually do the basic skills of craft, such as writing a script, things like that. No, of course they think. can't, because they've only just started. I mean, I, th- I don't think but that compared, was it. Compared to no, how it used to be. I understand. I mean, I think, I think that there was a, there was a huge difference. Two, I mean, many, right? Two I can think of huge differences. The first thing is... Um, everyone had more time so of mm. in those agencies in what i'm going to call the old days two things happened so the first thing was the cds were able to spend an awful lot of time with the teams helping them helping them get better i mean i someone i work with now 
she um, used to work at Jade Royal Beauty and she was only telling me the other day that, you know, she spent the first five years of her career just being coached basically by CDs. And, you know, that's a luxury which is hard harder now because we are working more quickly. Fees are obviously squeezed. The luxury of people being able to be coached is, is less. But also, of course, in the old days, um, I remember Paul Silburn used to tell me it was 10 years before he was allowed anywhere near, um, like, a TV, a TV brief, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in the old days, creatives spent 10 years sort of learning their chops on what would now be considered minor media. But that doesn't happen now. Young teams, you know, we don't have masses and masses of teams knocking around or huge no. layers of seniority within departments. The whole structure's changed, which is to do yeah. with moving from retainer to projects, to do with mm. fees being squeezed. It's the environment. Well, I love your point about time as well, yeah. you know, the time required to craft something. And actually, perversely, if someone wrote something stunning but it took him a week I'd probably be really annoyed because I'd be going what else are you doing you know we've got lots of jobs on so actually there's just people have four or five briefs at a time exactly you know that sort of agent the you know you're right the the sort of agency rhetoric which is you can have fast cheap and brilliant well maybe you can but I think something else has to give like somebody's life I mean you know yes you can have that if you're working 24 7 um you know something has to give it's not the case that, you know, 20 years ago, the agencies were doing that just for the sake of it. They were they were doing it because there was a reason. So, yeah, I, I agree with what you've been hearing. Are current agencies doing enough to keep older people in advertising as clients' demands are changing over time? Things are getting faster, as you guys have been talking about. How old are you? Uh, 47. I mean, in, yeah. in truth, one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of people who know me would describe me as very ambitious, um, and I am, but it's actually been a race to get away from, um, it's actually been a race to get on the top to be able to create security for myself and my family, mm-hmm. weirdly enough. <laughs> To get away, to, yeah, to get away from the politics because I've always been acutely aware that in this industry, um, the older you get, yeah, it's frightening, you know, isn't it? Apparently, over forty-five. Yeah, forty-five. Yeah, and I'm forty-four, so like you know, that's only a year away. So yeah, you and and um, I saw something quite interesting recently. I mean, look, I think the the other thing in the olden days is that people used to make different kinds of money and so you might get to 50 20 years ago but you might have made enough money to be able to retire that's the other yeah. thing that's not true anymore you know people do get to sort of 45 50 and um unfortunately lose their jobs but they aren't then in a position to retire as they might have been 20 years ago in advertising it's it's hard to know about our agencies doing enough it's it's really it's i think i find that a difficult question because we all have um i mean look it's about balance. Everything's about balance. We've got um, a brilliant, lovely senior copywriter who works for us four days a week, and he's 60. He's just had his 60th birthday. So you hope all agencies will have that kind of experience represented somewhere um, and enough of it. But equally, I would find it odd if we were started saying everyone has to be over 45. You know, it's yeah. like all of these conversations. No, what, of... I, what I'm kind of getting at is it seems that um, maybe it's a function of you are in a client service industry and clients increasingly are finding it harder to reach young people through traditional channels and media. They're obsessed with how to reach young people. So they want your agencies to tell you how to reach young people. Does that I think mean... it's more about cost, don't you? Like, as in, you get older, you get more expensive. And then if an agency is going through a tough time, you're not going to look at, 
you know, if an, an agency has to reduce its cost base, you tend to look at people who are expensive. Mm. I think that's a factor. I'd love to see what happens when, you know, the IPA recently reported that the media consumption of young people versus older people is the, the, the widest you know, the widest gulf we've ever seen. And actually there's a problem for the industry, which is young talent coming in having to make TV advertising exactly. may not actually be able to connect with it in the way that more experienced players do, and and and, and vice versa. You know, the ancient and modern guys have said, called out and gone, "We're not into fast ideas and digital ideas. We're into the old-fashioned yeah. stuff." So actually, maybe that divergence will require us to hold on to. I do find it hard to think of a client who would who would go, "Oh yeah, it's okay, nothing online." Don't yeah. you? Yeah, it's that. I find that hard. I just find that hard. But I, I admire the premise upon which. Yeah. They have launched. The thing I liked about the ancient modern is the two guys that were 66 and 55 look like they're 30. <laughs> and, they look incre- and they look incredibly wealthy. Um, and having uh, been part of a startup, I wonder whether you can actually succeed if you're already loaded um, because you might not have uh, the same uh, fear and, and what uh, I found ambition. Quite, I found it quite interesting is if we were 25 years ago and yeah. those three, perhaps not the 72-year-old guy, had launched an agency, three older white guys launching yeah. an agency wouldn't have actually been the subject of a podcast because it would have been normal. So, you know, do you see my point is like life is kind of, life goes in cycles all the time. And now, for some reason, that is normal, whereas 25, um, unusual, whereas 25 years ago it wouldn't have been at all. Sure. They uh, look bored. They look bored <laughs> rather than they look like they want to hungry. do something different or new. Well, I'm glad to see this industry is giving them an opportunity <laughs> to. Yeah, exactly. I really love the name. I think the name's great, don't yeah, you? No, yeah. it's great. I don't like it at all. I just, but the name's oh, it's... polarizing. I remember I hated the name Adam and Eve. I was absolutely adamant there was no way that was ever going to make it. So I was obviously a great prophesizer. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing more of your predictions, Larissa. Um, shout out also to this story uh, for CampaignLive.co.uk. It was written by John Tiley. So you all know John Tiley, um, a legend of campaign. Um, he quotes Martin Jones from the AR, who says of Agent of Modern, all three founders are very good practitioners and they'll start by getting business from people they know. The test of whether they can stand on their own feet will come in 18 months' time. So um, I'm going to set my watch and see about that. Right, next story. I just want to move on quickly to this one. Um, We broke it this morning. Um, Ofcom is to be given new social media regulator powers. Um, The government has been deciding for various months after the launch of its online harms white paper whether it should form a completely new regulator or whether Ofcom, which currently regulates broadcast media and postal communications, should be expanded. It's chosen to give Ofcom because of its experience in heft. What do you guys think? Hot take, good decision, bad decision? Progress. I think what I like the most is they're holding the internet companies to account and they're going to force Facebook and Google, for example, to publish what they consider to be legal or illegal kind Mm. of content creation, which I think opens up a massive kind of moral can of worms. I'd love to see where that goes. And some people are calling out the government to take responsibility and starting to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. And how can Ofcom, probably a bunch of 15 people, even 100 people deal mm, with the millions and millions. The exactly, how are they going to do that? But, but it's a good step. Hand, it's, it is, because it's not, obviously we can't say, oh, it's too big a task, we can't do it. I mean, I've found it amazing for years that um, internet companies 
don't seem to be held to the same standards as publishers. And I know they're not creators of content, but they most definitely are publishers of content, i.e. their platform through which the content is being distributed. So I've always found it nuts that it's okay that they're able to go, oh, sorry, that wasn't us. We didn't know it was there. Can you imagine the times saying that? I mean, it's just it's just nonsensical. So I'm I'm um, I really hope it goes far enough, quickly enough. And I hope that if there are fines or other um, consequences to um, that kind of content not being removed, that they're, they're significant. In Australia, I think it's 10% of, um, of annual revenue, which feels like a good amount, wow. right? Like, as yeah, in that's yeah. the kind, you know, it can't and just jail be... jail penalties potentially as well. Yeah, yeah, it can't just be a little slap on the wrist, I don't think, because otherwise you just won't create the kind of change that's needed. Do you think it will do much to improve brand safety in terms of um, marketing campaigns, in terms of the social media executions you might have as part or standalone in a campaign? Will it? Do you think it will give marketers more confidence in that area? As in where their stuff appears? Yeah. Um, I think it will give them a degree of confidence, but I think they're going to have to see it work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they're slapping a fine on... Say Facebook, it's going to take a year to get through, and in the meantime, everything else is going to run as normal. So yeah. I'd love to see how the machine actually gears up to give clients the confidence they need, because the intent, the statement of intent, is great, but it's it's got to be judged on based judged on how it actually works out. Yeah, I mean, I'd love I'd love to know if like surely it's all algorithm based. Surely there's an algorithm that can search for. Um, the wrong kind of content and automatically wow, remove it. I've never, but People I've never... get around those things. They they know what the algorithms are searching for and they <sighs> find code words. Yeah, and and what's the algorithm going to look for? How is it going to know when something's wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I'm wrong. not a tech person. <laughs> but I kind of, you know, you'd kind of hope the people who are experts in algorithms yeah. can create that algorithm because they seem mm. to be able the to white, create one the for white, everything else. The white male coders. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> writing the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, those. Maybe you can help them. Brief them or something. <laughs> well, we could do diversity in tech. It's a whole other issue yeah. which um, I won't start now but you're completely right you're completely right speaking of tech and I want to segue nicely to the fact that it's Valentine's Day oh, this happy weekend Valentine's I'm sure day. yes happy yeah. Valentine's Day everyone I'm sure you're all excited and one um, tech company um, has launched a campaign this week where it's um, celebrated some of the more cringe worthy uh, if I can call it humour, <laughs> some of the more cringeworthy things that um, people say to each other on Twitter and Valentine's Day. Um, it's called the Dating Twitter Advice Bureau. They're, they're launching an immersive experience in Covent Garden, London from the 13th to the 16th of February. So if you're interested, catch it, guys. And there's going to be a neon-lit adult area where people can glimpse X-rated tweets at the Peep Show, including this gem from Twitter user Arf Measures. Get it? Arf, A-R-F, Measures. <laughs> She says, tell me what you want. He says, a burrito. She says, no, tell me what you want in bed. He says, oh, and then gets into bed. I want a burrito. Oh, God. Is that... Is that literally someone has effectively broadcast their conversa- their actual conversation on Twitter? They they could Why? be they could be a comedian. Could they, they could be I don't know. <laughs> don't give up the day job. <laughs> I don't mind the um the the ads like the I've seen quite I mean obviously I'm not I'm not planning to be part of the immersive experience, I'm sorry. But I have seen quite a lot of the um posters. Yeah. And some of them are quite funny. I mean I don't mind it. I tend to hate Valentine's Day advertising. I just think it's, I mean, I kind of hate Valentine's Day. Oh, no, you're one of those people. <laughs> um, so then I wouldn't be the ideal audience. But 
Yeah. There must, be, there, must be, there must be one ad that you secretly like, a Valentine's Day ad. Um, no, I was trying really hard to think. No. I think the Hinge stuff is quite good, but at least they have What's a right. What's the Hinge stuff? So in the US, they've um, they've done just another campaign about sort of um, same sort of... I like their tone of voice and I like the way... I mean, the thing I do like, which isn't a Valentine's Day ad, is Google's Loretta ad for the Super Bowl. It wasn't oh, for yeah, Valentine's yeah. Day, but that's an actual love story. Yeah, and it's Very a really great piece ad. of work. Mm. But I don't really like any Valentine's Day ads. No, I was uh, I picked up on the Moon Pig KFC collaboration and I thought, oh my God. What's that? Explain um, that. Well, no, because they've just invested in a new TV advertising campaign that would cost over a million and they've destroyed the value created by such an awful collaboration where they've got scratch and sniff KFC chicken cards. Oh uh, yes, we got that in our office. Yes, yeah, like yes. who is like who is the audience? Uh, <laughs> why is it a good idea? Why is it why is it good for KFC? Why is it good for Moonpig? It, so what is it? You get a card and then you and it's. I think you can give your KFC. loved one like um, KFC scented card. KFC yeah. scented card. Or KFC sip, inspired yeah. headlines. Right. Um, but I just can't see it. I mean, I do love... A, so when you saw about advertising, I was like, I actually these days like partnerships, like good yeah. partnerships. Brands I, getting I together, love, right? I love the Intersport Nike uh, kind of uh, 1980s uh, fitness video thing that We Are Pi executed recently. That was awesome. You know, a collaboration that creates value for both parties. Uh, Moonpig KFC, I don't think so. <laughs> so are you guys telling me, such as your antipathy for Valentine's Day and this, <laughs> year, this annual celebration of love, Ugh. you guys aren't doing anything this year for your brands of Valentine's Day? Well, I There's think, no campaigns you can plug for this weekend? Well, I think, I think there's an opportunity. I mean, given our social content crazy world, we're always talking about the the people's calendar, the social calendar, the content calendar. Clearly, there's an opportunity to hijack culture through a moment like uh, through an occasion like Valentine's. But I don't even know how relevant Valentine's is now and to which audiences. Like, do young people care about Valentine's Day? I have no yeah, idea. Sure I need data do. to have this conversation. <laughs> You just said, yeah, sure, they do. Why are the restaurants always really busy at Valentine's (laughs) Day? Because they're offering cheap menu items. I don't know. I think you're talking to the wrong crew. But also, I don't think think the work's um, that great. I mean, I agree with you, like tactical stuff. Um, It's my old agency, so I always keep an eye on it. But I really liked the Saatchi uh, Expedia ad, which Ryan Price did. Shout out to Ryan. Um, And what happens in that? Well, it's it's a print ad, so it was just to do with um, the uh, Meghan Markle Prince Harry story. So it just appeared opposite all of those stories, and it was just a picture of Canada with "Escape the Family" written on it. You know, it's just oh yes, nice. I've seen that, yeah, it's, like that's good. That's not a thing. That's not our oh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Let's do the thing. That's a proper match of a cultural moment and a brand, yeah. rather than just sort of doing Valentine's Day for the sake of it and create which, value for yeah. the audience. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, we're going to have a Valentine's Day roundup. You guys will be pleased to know on campaignlive.co.uk where okay, we're going to be showing you the best and perhaps the worst as well of um, all the lovey dovey ads. Um, we're going to wrap up in a second. Let's just by finish by talking about some ads. Mm, yes, please. What ads have you been looking at this week? What's what's caught your eye? What's... I like the. I, I so I'm quite enjoying the long format film things at the moment. So everyone's talking about the death of advertising, but. The resurgence of film is uh, clearly going to happen. 80% of all internet traffic is film-driven. So film's here to stay. Best way of telling a story. So the Starbucks... um, Hold on, before before you say Starbucks, what what was so good about that long-form film? Well, what was good about this one in particular, I just think it was uh, content you could enjoy that found a role, a, a kind of credible, subtle, but meaningful role for the brand, and I liked that. And what's your name? 
It's James. So the Starbucks thing is um, was called out as Channel 4's Diversity Award, Advertising Award. Uh, it was the LGBT campaign. Every name's a story. Story of a girl called Gemma, who is, um, again, the language is failing me here, but she's basically um, struggling with her, um, her gender difference, uh, transitioning, I guess, from a, a girl to a boy. And the brand celebrates it in a really soft, meaningful way. And we all know... The personal touch from Starbucks is when they call out your name, and I think mm. it was a really nice welding of brand yeah, I think experience an and that, culture. I think it came from a sort of a social media-led insight from the US, where uh, transgender people were saying that actually, it what that was a moment of acceptance. The Starbucks um, okay. having the name on the cup, thing. so it was actually insight. rooted in in a, in a truth. So that's yeah. really great because then you do yeah. have actual credibility as a brand to. Yeah. part of the conversation rather than just badging it on which is always difficult yeah um i was trying to think when you asked this question and i i can't unfortunately get away from silence well not unfortunately because i love it but i can't get away from silence the critics which i know is the christmas ad but it's because my children love it so much you're still talking about christmas yeah. ads well my kids are like they play it almost every day my little boy oh, knows no. all the words he sings the whole song and he wanders around pretty much every day. He says to me, Mummy, this is very, 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 very unacceptable. It's like somebody hit you with a bulldozer. If your house was a car, it would get pulled over. Excuse me, please. This is very, 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 very unacceptable. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's the IKEA Christmas ad, so it was, it was a kind of a rap song. And the insight was when people come over for Christmas and your house is looking terrible, you know, they kind of look down on you. Um, which I loved actually as a different way of doing Christmas but actually I just love love the ad so much <laughs> so yeah so but yeah that's why I can't get away from it uh, you're being very polite you're not talking about any ads you dislike. I didn't think you'd ask I'm, that I'm going to talk about an ad I disliked oh, you mentioned Super Bowl earlier yeah. um, I really didn't like that Audi ad with um, what's the name from Game of Thrones oh, Daisy Williams where she's singing the Frozen song I mean, what, mm. what was that? Yeah, uh, yeah I big waste connect. of money is what that was. I could not connect. <laughs> what was yours then? Uh, I like the I like the people at the agency suffer so really bad. <laughs> go on, uh, go on. But I don't like the cause light one where the guy's swimming through snow. I just oh. prefer, um, keep it fresh. I think is the end line for the cause light ad. I just do you know what it is? It feels like they're struggling to recreate the kind of old film drama that advertising historically would have delivered through, you know, a big, simple idea, epic art direction, epic production company, and it just falls flat. It's just not special. Uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell... I'm going to get these guys out of here. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much to our illustrious panel, Larissa and Zaid. Thanks, oh, guys. It's been good fun. Thank yeah. you. Uh, thank you, too, to our campaign producers. Ben and Martha, you've been great. And the number eight studio in London, Soho, which hosted us today. Thank you very much. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us a listen, too. Remember to subscribe if you're a first-timer at all the usual podcast places. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>